Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you? Where are you? I'm, I'm at home. I'm not talking about football and I'm especially not talking about VAR. <laughs> Well, well, it's only about twice this season, Kieran, that you've not been talking about football, whereas I've been sulking for most of it. So, welcome to my world. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm. Um, uh, we may have. I don't think we'll have recording issues, Kieran, because they do have the internet in Birmingham, where I am. I've been. I've been telling people all week that Ali and I have been going to our our second little place up in Worcestershire. Uh, the truth is, we're in uh, Ali's mum's house, clearing out her effects. God rest her soul. Um, straight after this pod, I'm starting on her petticoat draw. Um, happy Easter, everybody. <laughs> um, Painting pictures with words there, Kevin. <laughs> well, I, like, I think people like a bit of context. They don't like to think we're in a soulless studio like the news agents or whatever that pod is or or wherever it is. They, they like to think that we are men of the people. <laughs> Currently both in our pyjamas on, early on an Easter Sunday morning. Um, we have to get this finished, Kieran, I've got to watch the Pope. This is a middle-aged man. Because my mum would always phone up and say, did you see what his, his holiness had to say? I'd go, I'll see it, mum. I only just got out of bed. And I'd get two hours of bollocking. So, so I still instinctively have to watch what the Holy Father's got to say. Um, we have a couple of news stories, Kieran, before our questions. The first being that... I imagine Roberto Di Zerbi has been taken off the short list of potential Spurs managers now. Uh, after kicking, I just like, I just love the fact that I was watching a match today and the commentator says, "Oh, people don't like to see scenes like this." They do. Uh, they we love it. Love seeing scenes like that. <laughs> and apparently, it kicked off right from the even. They refused to shake hands before the game even started. Is that right? I, I believe there was an act of disrespect in an, in an Italian league match 18 years ago. I thought, I, I hold a grudge, but oh, Deserbi, man alive. <laughs> they, He's an angry man. Football people are a strange breed. You can do, you can try and break their legs. You can probably go behind their back with their misses, but show any sign of disrespect, and that's they don't like that, do they? They really don't. But it was just, just. It's two angry men at the end as well. I love the fact that Tottenham's manager when the commentator said, did, did you think you deserve to win that game? Because whereas Roy Hodgson would have gone, no, we, we got lucky with that, uh, as Sean Dyche did. But instead, Tottenham's manager just went, yeah, we did. Yeah, we were a better team. Uh, <laughs> and the commentator did exactly what I would have did and agreed with him. Rather than <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but anyway, that, that brings us nicely, Kieran, to Italy and to Spain who I predict are possibly only a year ahead of us in making a big decision. Yes, this is in respect of front of shirt uh, ad 
uh, deals. And both Italy and Spain have effectively confirmed, and, and they have been talking about this for a while, that they're not going to have gambling adverts. Now, where this leaves us with crypto and NFT, T-style adverts, we're not sure because we've always argued that that is effectively gambling with a small g. But it uh, it, it is the, the the government authorities effectively uh, taking a stand on this. Uh, and in relation to the Premier League, it does look as if there's going to be a voluntary ban, but that's going to be tapered in mm. over a few years. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and my view has always been that this actually uh, is is advantageous to the bigger clubs who don't have gambling sponsors because yeah. they 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 are a more global brand, um, and therefore it is uh, it's negative from a financial point of view for the smaller clubs. If it is just going to be a front of shirt ban, then that increases the value of your sleeve sponsors, which. And, and you know, once you start to read the small print, you go, oh, hold on, this isn't quite as it seems. Um, and is it addressing the broader issues uh, in relation to gambling? It, it's, it's tokenism. Mm. Um, so it, it's, 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 not a, it's not a comprehensive, well-thought-out policy. Mm. Uh, two things, Kieran. First of all, are Spain and Italy giving their clubs uh, the same sort of notice period that we're talking about? Here, uh, the press are assuming there's going to be a three-year lead-up to this. And in terms of how much this will cost football in Spain and Italy, if Bet365, for example, were to sponsor Liverpool or Manchester United, would that cost them considerably more than it would to sponsor Barcelona or Milan? Um I've not seen the small print of of the Spain or Italy deals, but given that clubs will have signed contracts with their sponsors, you would expect there to be some form of flexibility. And and most of most changes are normally graduated. Um, in in relation to a, a sponsor for Manchester United or Liverpool, a front of shirt deal for those two clubs, we're, we're talking in the region of. 40 to 50 million pounds. It's more than 50 million pounds, I think, in respect of Manchester United. Um, Barcelona are, are probably able to trump them. Uh, yeah, Barcelona are, are, are a pretty amazing brand in their own rights. Uh, so so they, are, they are certainly popular. Um, the reason why the gambling companies don't particularly want to touch them is they 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 just want to see some have somebody seeing their eyeballs and also if we take a look at the vast majority of front of shirt deals that we presently have they're for non uk based uh, front of shirt sponsors mm. many of which are uh, aimed at the asian markets who have white le- white label uh, websites effectively in the UK. So again, you, you can't actually bet if you're based in the UK with some of these sponsors. And they're, they're all linked to a company based in the Isle of Man, which is now coming in for a bit more scrutiny. And, mm. and that's got to be welcomed. Uh, this next story, Kieran, we were meant to do on our actual news pod the other day, uh, but I completely forgot. Uh, even though you... <laughs> Some instinct, Kieran, of yours kicked in, and you actually said before we started, which is the closest we get to preparation <laughs> after the, the usual 15 minutes of gossip, uh, you actually said, don't forget to add in this story, and which I took as, 
don't do this story. And <laughs> to be perfectly honest, the only reason I remembered to put it back in this morning and then check with you whether or not I'd done it the other day was that I'm in the city concerned, by which people now tell it's about one of two clubs. <laughs> yes. Um, it's not Aston Villa. Uh, so therefore that narrows it down to Birmingham City. And this is in respect of three gentlemen who have failed the owners and directors test, sort of, even though they were never officially an owner or a director. But I think it's fair to say that they were operating as shadow owners. Um, so this is to do with a, a company called Maxco, um, which consisted of the, the former Barcelona striker, Maxi Lopez, mm. who's whose only connection to Birmingham, I guess, could be the Bullring. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty tentative. Um, a, a businessman called Paul Richardson, and the former Charlton Athletic chief executive Matt Southall, who, uh-oh, uh-oh. In, in my opinion, yeah, uh-oh. one of the one of the big parasites mm. of modern day football. Uh, and if people are saying, "Well, why am I being so harsh?" I'd recommend that they read the Charlton dossier, which yeah. is a lovingly crafted and uh, forensic examination of Matt Southall's activities there. If you then talk to fans from Rochdale um, with regards to a hostile takeover in which Matt Southall was was connected, um, and now here. So they they set up this company called Maxco, um, and the aim was to buy Birmingham City for £35 million, and the deal collapsed. Now, there are big issues in respect of trying to trace who Birmingham's owners actually are. But what appeared to be the case is that although the deal had not gone through, they had installed their people at the club, and they were effectively running it on a day-to-day basis. Um, So what we've seen is that the EFL have, have given them uh, bans um, from any involvement with an EFL club. And I think Lopez has had a – it's just a one-month ban. Richardson, two months. Southall, six months. I think they should have re- replaced that with years mm. um, because his uh, his breaches were deemed to be the most uh, significant. So it, it's messy. Um we don't know what's going to happen in respect of Birmingham. It's it's a club which which does need a change at the top. But I, I always say to people, don't fall into the trap of thinking that change is the same as improvement. Yeah. And uh, it wouldn't if if Matt Southall was involved, based on historic records, um, it, it wouldn't have necessarily been an improvement. So so that's why I'm sort of I'm not going in two footed here. Uh, I, I'm just uh, I'm just cautious given. Uh, you know, leopards, spots, etc. <clears throat> Birmingham City, Kieran, are a club. Uh, I have a lot of. Uh, I'm not going to say I don't have got any fondness for any other club except Palace, but they're a, they are a club. I know quite a few Birmingham City fans through my time up here in this wonderful city, and it's a club I worry about, Kieran, because they have been swirling around our podcast for quite some time now. But for those worried Birmingham fans, can we just confirm? There's been no sanction against the club by the EFL. It's just these three individuals that no longer have any part of the club anyway. That's right. They are no longer involved on a shadow basis or an actual basis. 
um, it, it's there to, to try to pr- protect the game. Um, and um, unfortunately, football is an industry that does need protection. If, and Birmingham are, are one of those clubs that have, have yeah must have kicked a black cat a few times yeah, because really, yeah. you, you go back to you know to Carson Young and then the current owners and these potential people and there's a few other flyby nights uh, and of course uh, our very good friend Lawrence Bassini um, yeah. once said that he was going to uh, uh, buy the club um, and uh, Lawrence has said that when that deal goes through he is actually going to come on the podcast yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think you and you, I will be, we'll be in the home by then, Kieran. <laughs> yes, singing <laughs> singing Sex Pistols songs around the old piano. I imagine. Um, for those of our listeners, Kieran, thinking, oh, Kieran really has got in hard today, and he parasite two footed tackles. He is upset by that Spurs game. It's, it's more to do with the fact that uh, producer Guy has gone on holiday uh, somewhere Caribbeany. I imagine knowing producer Guy and. Uh, uttered what I think are probably the most famous last words ever, which was like, can you two sort it out while I'm away? <laughs> Just, you know, can you edit it, anything that needs to... Yeah, of course, boss. Absolutely. <laughs> um, on to our questions, Kieran, and they are the usual uh, eclectic mix. Um, all of them are very interesting questions. One in mm-hmm. particular I thought was a, a fascinating one. Uh, the first one comes from Gonzalo Pardo, um, and I suspect this is a, a question that both our respective sons would have more knowledge about than we do, Kieran, being slightly generational. But Gonzalo Pardo says, I wanted to ask a question regarding why and how football teams monetize their e-sports teams, uh, which is becoming increasingly huge, Kieran. It's being mm. shown live on TV now, for example. I've seen that some football teams, says Gonzalo, have their own e-sports teams, for example, Celtic, Man City, PSG and in Chile, half of the teams has an esport team competing in football like EA, FIFA, PES, and non football like Fortnite, LOL. I'm just reading the letters out here, Kieran. CS. I thought, I thought LOL was laugh out loud. That's what I thought, Kieran, but let's not say that with our children <laughs> in earshot, really. Not that my one will be out of bed for not this bank holiday for a while. Um, how does it generate revenue for the clubs? Right. If, if we take a look at where football clubs do generate money from historically. It's broadcasting deals, ticket sales, and commercial. Um, and those have sort of come to a, not, not a sh- shuddering halt, but the, the, the opportunities for growth are potentially limited. By having an esports team and uh, tapping into the metaverse, uh, <laughs> the likes of TikTok, and uh, Instagram and so on. There is the opportunity to to monetize via streaming. Uh, now, this is this is an uncertain market, but just because it's an uncertain doesn't mean that football clubs should avoid it, because otherwise there's the danger of, of potentially being too too late. And I mean, I, I remember back in ninety two ninety three when when the Premier League did make a big effort to sell. The international TV rights. When, if you think at the time, yeah, English football was pretty much a pariah of yeah. of the whole, yeah, you know, certainly within Europe, and that proved to be an inspired decision. And now we're at the, the place where uh, international rights exceed those of the, the domestic TV deals. So, as far as the clubs are concerned, th- th- there is the opportunity, first of all, to build brand awareness if you're. If your esports club is successful, then 
there's the chance of potentially selling merchandise to the people who are watching this. Um, so, you know, that, that's another uh, income stream. There will be adverts during the the streaming um you might in in a longer term be able to to start to uh negotiate broadcast deals and these broadcast deals they don't necessarily come under the premier league umbrella so therefore and certainly as far as the bigger clubs are concerned they've always wanted to have their own rights and at present they've got their own rights for reserve games and so on which don't really tend to uh, make uh, any significant difference. But th- there is certainly a huge market out there um, in, in respect of gaming and uh, building a more global audience from from the, from the existing global audience is tacking, t- tapping into different demographics. And on the back of that, uh, being able to to engage. And, and the, you know, the, the new oil is supposed to be data. And the more data you have about people who have got some form of connection with the club and the club brand, that data can be sold and, and it can be monetized. So I think that's how the clubs are looking at this. It's it's all it's all digital in nature. Um but there is talk about, you know, and, and I think this, this this probably does happen. You know, and let's face it, we, we are not the target demographic and, and our knowledge here is limited. But in, in respect of some of the, the big matches um, uh, and, and when you get into the finals of these competitions – Effectively, they, these can take place in arenas where mm. you know you get people to you get a few thousand people turning up, and you, and there'll be big screens, and the 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 esport players themselves are are celebrities in their own right. In in an environment with which people like myself and you, we're just not familiar. But I think I think it's it's not it's not you know, it's not ignorance on our payoff. It's just that you know, we we are not uh, the. the those people who are being aimed at, but there is certainly, in terms of you know, influencer markets and so on, uh, there is the opportunity to make money on the back of this. It's it's just that our brains are not big enough anymore, Kieran. A very good friend of mine, comedian Jeff Green, who says the older he gets, the less he inclined he is to move his head, because <laughs> if, he's fairly convinced every time he nods or shakes his head, a little bit more information disappears out of his ears. Um, which is <laughs> it's exactly I, I find this I'm like a toddler trying to retain information. Um, if I don't write it down, Kieran, it doesn't. As we know, like Birmingham City news stories, it's it's interesting talking of those broadcasting deals back in the nineties. Remember that nostalgia pod we talked about doing as a one-off? Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've been reading this really interesting book, a very funny book by a chap called Ned Bolting who does more cycling stuff now, a respected cycling broadcaster, but for 20 years was was at the coalface for, for Sky and, and BBC. But he he was part of the ITV Digital uh, broadcast oh. deal with, with the EFL. I, di- I didn't realise, Kieran, how disastrous that was. I mean, I've, I knew it was swirling around at the back of my head somewhere, but that's something we need to talk about at some stage. Mm. Perhaps um, we're hoping to get somebody from the EFL on the show Soon, and it seems to me the EFL is is still struggling to recover from something that happened all that long ago. So, let's not get into details now, Kieran. But it's I just found it really, really interesting. Uh, Daniel Hill has our next question, uh, and Daniel Hill uh, has the same sort of I wouldn't say it's an obsession, but it's it's a it's a question and a subject that a lot of our listeners are very interested in, and it concerns the 
tax that footballers pay. And Daniel Hill says, I know players get around a lot of tax with image rights, but I'm interested to know that if a player is on, say, a £100,000 a week contract, are they paying the full income tax on this? Or do they set themselves up as self-employed contractors? Or does the club pay it and the £100,000 is net? Now, this is something, Kieran, that's been in the media a lot recently about high-paid entertainers, mm. some of whom in the football world. But it's it's something that um, a lot of our listeners are convinced that footballers are spending a lot of their time um, trying to find ways that are paying the correct tax, which I'm not sure is entirely the case. No. Um, in a respect of this, and, and we had this discussion on, on a recent show, it, yeah. it's a classic case of don't don't upset the bear when it comes <laughs> to dealings with HMRC. Yeah. Uh, a football player does sign a contract of employment with a football club. And there is nothing to stop the player at the same time uh, via their representatives, usually, setting up a company to, to manage their image rights. And then a proportion of the pre-agreed deal goes to the image rights company. Now, HMRC sort of say, no more than 20%. Okay, again, don't take the piss is, is, is the mantra. And that is likely to be more accepted in the uh, Premier League than it is if you are a centre-half at Doncaster Rovers. And that's no that's no, no besmirching the present centre-half of Doncaster Rovers. But they are unlikely to have a, a, a profile through which uh, you know, their signature, their, 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 them standing next to a product, is going to bring in substantial amounts of money um, and therefore can be, be allocated as part of the, the club's ability to generate extra revenues. Now, the advantage of that is that if you are, if you are paid £100,000 a week, and let's say that's a, that's a gross, um, on the vast majority of that, you are paying tax at 45%. And uh, yeah, that's therefore yeah, effectively 45 grand a week going off in, in tax. If 20% of that goes to your image rights company, it means that the, the player is effectively receiving uh, you know, a a weekly or month you know, a, a monthly payroll amount based on income of eighty thousand pounds a week, and the image rights company is receiving money from the football club. The image rights company, because it is a company, pays corporation tax. Uh, it used to be at nineteen percent. It, it is going up. You know, the government is increasing corporation tax rates. Um, but that's going to be substantially lower. And then the the profits of the image rights company can be distributed to either the player, yeah, sensibly, when the player retires, mm. or if the players wants to get the cash now, if they've got any sense, what they will do is that they will set up partner close relatives as directors and shareholders of that company and they will pay a dividend out to those people and if those people are not in full-time employment again you've got you've got a tax-free allowance each year you've got your first set of earnings of being at uh, you know 19 20 percent and so on so so it's a way of uh organizing your affairs to reduce tax uh as for 
is this is this moral or ethical? I, th- I think you you've got to set this aside. It's legal, yeah. Provided, yeah, as, yeah, as, yeah. as I said before, you don't take the Mickey. And, and I know people or some people get very angry about this. Um, you know, we we all do tax avoidance. Yeah, many people have an ISA. That's a way of avoiding paying tax. It's perfectly legitimate. It's actually, in fact, it was set up by the government as a means of encouraging people to save and to put money aside. So uh, these schemes are allowed in the you know, HMRC, will review them. Uh, there have been some historical investigations, but provided I think the individuals concerned as players and their representatives just do it sensibly, uh, that's how it would work. And it would result uh, in a net position of a reduction in tax being paid. <clears throat> Putting uh, image rights aside, Kieran, would there be any player, on? and let's let's take £100,000 a week as the starting point for the biggest earners, and I know there are players who earn more than that, but would there be any player on that amount of money who is just an employee of a club having their tax deducted at source, all players at that level all have set up their own production company, essentially, to, and be paid through that. Well, we, we can't talk about an individual's personal circumstances, but players of agents, players of representatives, and one of the things that players will be saying to them is, are you looking after my, my finances? And I think it would be a, a dereliction of duty at that level of remuneration for an agent or representative to say, oh, bollocks to this, mate. Let's just go and pay it all through PAYE. Right, okay. uh, so I, I think it's highly unlikely, but you, you cannot say with, with any degree of, you know, I cannot give 100% certain guarantee. The, the trouble is, Kieran, as we found out recently, discussing the, the Craig Bellamy case and, and others, that, that young footballers aren't probably thinking about that. Mm. That uh, aren't probably thinking that their agent will be doing the best. They're just assuming it because they don't have the, the financial knowledge because they're not taught it at school. And so um, Jamie Moss has a question, Kieran, I think is a, a really interesting concept, and it's one that's never occurred to me before, and those are questions that I really like. Jamie says, it seems to me that in the long term, women's football will lose out by all the top teams being directly associated to men's teams. For example, a Bristol Rovers fan is unlikely to follow Bristol City women, but may follow an unassociated Bristol women's side, creating a larger potential fan base. Is there any way of considering this potential future revenue impact? I think that's a very interesting point, Kieran. I think Jamie is is exactly spot on. And and remember, there are uh, separate teams in London, in Glasgow, who who do compete in in football. In Durham, in Lewis as well, Yep. Um, I think the issue here is Jamie's keywords are long term. Ah. And in the long term, I absolutely agree with him. The problem that we have is in the short term, women's football is losing money. So if we take a look at the accounts of of the big clubs that have been coming out um, in the WSL, they are all losing money. They are losing money. Yeah. A seven figures amount. So we're talking, you know, you know, a million, even two or three million pounds is being lost on clubs that are bringing in only, yeah, say only, you know, they're bringing in sort of yeah, potentially four or five million in total, and a lot of that four or five million is connected to deals with the parent club. So if we had 
Bristol United as a as a club in the in the women's game representing the city the challenge would be if the club wants to stay in that division it needs to pay the going rate it needs to have a competitive budget but unfortunately the women's game isn't generating enough money for the club to break even uh-huh. so therefore somebody has to fund those losses now if we could find the equivalent of and Abramovich, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, Steve Parrish, you know, Tony Bloom to come in and say, right, well, actually, I want nothing to do with the local men's teams. This is a separate project. I think this is an absolutely fantastic idea. And I'm willing to underwrite those losses in the short term with a view to, to building up the strength of the club and the brand representing the city, targeting uh, a, a different demographic. And I, 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 w- I was at Wembley on Thursday night watching the Lionesses play Brazil. Fantastic. Yeah, ab- absolutely brilliant night out. Mm. Everybody had a good time. Uh, very noticeable change of atmosphere compared to watching England men's team and I'm not I'm, I'm not falling down sort of you know the yeah everybody that goes to watch the England men's team is is aggressive and so on but it was a far more family atmosphere um, and you could build up over a period of time a decent sized uh, audience for people who want to attend but what happens in the short term in, in in respect of underwriting those losses I think is the challenge whereas by having a women's team which is linked to the men's team, the women's team's losses don't count towards FFP. So therefore, uh, the the men's teams or the parent team is willing to absorb those losses. And also, it has the funds to uh, provide uh, to, to, to cover for those particular losses. And I think that's that's the challenge that we have in the women's game at present. One, one of them, one of, and there are other challenges as well as the game is trying to grow but not making the same it's not not mistakes but the same historical issues that we've seen in the men's game which is being dominated by a relatively small number of clubs if that happens in the WSL uh, the problem I think that's going to arise is that you will follow Crystal Palace forever I will follow Brighton forever regardless of what division we're in if if we play Chelsea or Manchester United and, and we concede five or six, you know, Manchester City rather than Chelsea, I think, these days, um, then you you take it. In the women's game, if that happens too often, how are you going to build up a support base if you just become cannon fodder for the bigger teams? And we've already started to see uh, in the WSL the same names at the top of the WSL that exist in, as at the top of the men's game. And I think that's going to be another problem because the support base for the smaller clubs isn't big enough to, for them to to put up with that week in, week out. Yeah, it, it's it, it's the demographic at the moment that's part of the problem. A, a very good friend of mine, Chirpy, uh, a Palace fan, uh, known him for years, love him dearly, his daughter plays for one of the Palace women's teams. Uh, she's, she's very, she's tiny, she's fearless. You've, I think you've probably met her in the portals. Um, yeah. uh, she dislocated her finger playing for Palace a couple of weeks ago and put it back herself. 
<clears throat> I know. That's exactly the reaction of about 25 blokes in the pub. <laughs> she came in. She'd been uh, hit in the face by a ball, and then she went, oh, yeah, as I fell over, I dislocated my finger. And we went, yeah. what did you do? She went, put it back in. We went, um, but talking, it's interesting talking to, to Chris about because he's followed the women's game more closely than I have, partly because his, his daughter is so good at it. But his theory is that at the moment, the demographic at a women's game is very different. And as you mm. say, at Wembley, you'll have a lot more young people. He said the thing is what women's football needs to do is get through the next decade so that all those mm. seven, eight, nine-year-olds who are going now will continue to go. But by that time, we'll have disposable income and we'll be encouraging more people to go. So it, 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 I think that's an interesting take on it. it just if women's football, I mean, take away the top sides, who are doing all right, um, as long as you don't compare it to the men's game. But just for, for clubs like Palace, who aren't the big team in women's football, because clubs like Durham, like Lewis, like London, uh, Lionesses as well, they can just get through that, that next decade, get this generation grown up and spending money, it might be all right. Yeah. But it's just yeah. getting through that decade, isn't it? It's, it's short-term pain for long-term yeah. gain. Yeah. But who is going to find who is going to fund the short term pain? Yeah, yeah. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Max Healy has this question. Max Healy says, in a deal involving a player swap, does it make more financial sense for the club selling the higher valued player to take a player in a swap deal or to keep the sale of their player and the purchase of the lower valued player in the deal separate? Right. For the purposes of registering the player, the deals have to be shown separately uh, because... That has implications for 
the the profits on the players being sold. And remember, we've we've often spoken about the the Arthur and the Pjanic deal as, as an example of what can happen when things go a bit crazy. Um, so from from the accounting point of view, you have to show these as two separate. So let's say that we've got two players. One is valued at 20 million, the other at 15. You will have to show those as two additions uh, for, for, for the respective clubs because otherwise you've got inconsistency with term, in terms of the way that you deal with other player registrations. Um there, there could be some tax issues arising, but I, I don't think so. Um, it, it could be that if you want to reduce your tax, yeah, let's say that let's say that both clubs are profitable. I appreciate you know, people are now looking at me and think I've gone crazy the, the idea of a of a profitable football club <laughs> and there. But what what you could do, and there's nothing to stop this, is to say that, well, under those circumstances, if both clubs are already profitable, the last thing you want to do is to report profits from player sales. And therefore, what I would do under those circumstances is that we would agree that you sell me player A for £5 million and I sell you player B for £1. And therefore, we've got lower income, lower profits, and lower tax. That's... That would be where um, it's effectively doing Max suggestion, and I, and I know Max. I'd like to say congratulations to Max on an absolutely fantastic uh, Brighton Marathon last weekend. By the way, uh, he ran it in less than four hours, which is an absolutely superb time. As somebody that has run the Brighton Marathon myself, and vowed never to run it again uh, when I finished <laughs> it, <laughs> which. which uh, advice, I, advice, of course, which in true bloke style I didn't take. Yeah. Um, but th- they're under normal circumstances, you probably put them through at market value. If you want to improve things for FFP purposes, you inflate both by, let's say, 10, 20, 30 million. And if you want to reduce your tax affairs, you would deflate both. So you'd have to look at the specific circumstances relating to the two clubs. Yeah. Max may have done a good job here in running the Brighton Marathon, but has he ever put back his own dislocated finger? <laughs> when he's done that, he'd let it come back and I'll start sponsoring. He's not a Brighton fan by any chance, is he? Oh, Max is, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah absolutely a Brighton fan. Well, none of this will happen then. I'm going to get it ed- Oh, I can't get it edited out. Guys in the... Damn, <laughs> you've lured me in. There are all these questions this week from Brighton fans, Kieran. Have I, no, 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 no. Have I fallen for a trick? Uh, Hugh Roberts... Uh, has a question that we have um, we have sort of discussed, talked around it, but I don't think we ever came up with a definitive answer. But Hugh Roberts says, with the World Cup being staged in winter last year, did that have an effect on replica kit sales, do we know? Surely fans are more likely to buy shirts in summer. Um, no, there, there's no evidence uh, in, in terms of kit sales. And remember, uh, our summer isn't everybody's summer. So you know there, there are Ooh, yeah. different mm-hmm. geographic cons- uh, issues to take into consideration. Uh, the, the biggest drivers tend to be has the ha- has the country uh, qualified for the World Cup? You know, how big is its natural football audience? How well does it start the tournament? You often see a big pickup on sales if you get to the you get through the group stages. Um, and then from from sort of the casual fans eye, uh, you know how how 
outstanding are the kits you know and i remember some of you know some of the nigeria kits historically have been absolutely amazing uh one of my big regrets is is still not buying the the usa kits from the 1994 world cup which which were i I know they were you know stars and stripes but looking back at anything wow that was that's quite an amazing kit um but that that doesn't tend to be the biggest driver it's very much uh if 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 the country is involved there will still be a big uh tick up in terms of you know england wales you know whoever the domestic nation is going to be um and and that that goes throughout the rest of the world as well yes and also as we've discussed before you have this strange phenomenon where fans of england wales scotland northern ireland the republic and germany are more likely to buy retro shirts than it seems any other country in the world, which is an interesting one. Uh, but again, that's for the nostalgia pod. Now, Kieran, do you know, I, I, I used the word antsy. Uh, I'm never entirely sure what the word antsy means. <laughs> but you know how antsy I get about just people just giving us their first names. Well, I'm, I'm slightly confused now because our next question, we have a first name, but also a location. So there's yes. very, very little point going on a witness protection scheme if you tell us where you live, which I'm sure are words that Uncle Terry told you when you were dadling on his knee as a three-year-old. Kieran, my son, let me just tell you this. <laughs> Do you ever want to work this protection scheme? And you will be. Uh, so Ben from Bury St. Edmunds says, hello, Ben. Uh, um, hello, Bury St. Edmunds, beautiful part of the world. Ben from Bury St. Edmunds, and this is discussing a club that we – uh, we spoke to uh, the owner and, mm. and, and we've spoken about, and in general, we seem to think they're a soundly run club. But Ben says, now we've seen Ipswich's first set of accounts and heavy losses under the new ownership of the Arizona Investment Fund, ORG. How will ORG turn these losses around and make a profit as they said they will? Right. Um, I, I will tell you after the show exactly who Ben from Berries and Edmonds ah. is. Okay. So somebody you might know. So that's intriguing. Mm. Um, now, in respect of Ipswich, um, these are record losses um, under the new owners. And again, looking at Ipswich uh, historically, uh, so I, I've been through all the accounts all the way through to I've, I've actually looked at the last 15 years of Ipswich's accounts uh, this morning. How many other people have said that on Easter Sunday? They're too busy. They're too busy looking forward to the Pope's speech, I suspect. Um, but Ipswich have lost £170,000 a week over the course of the last decade. You know, an incredible amount of money. And, and yet, you know, the, if you talk to Ipswich fans about the previous Ipswich owner, Marcus Evans, a breakdown in the relation there. Uh, the new owners have come in. They they have put more money in. Um, they, I think there's is it eight victories on the trot with eight clean sheets. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're, on, yeah, they're yeah. on a phenomenal run, absolutely amazing run at present. So fair play to them for that. Um, as far as finding a profit on on a business which has lost money nonstop and uh, has paid out wages which have exceeded revenue in fourteen years out of the last fifteen. It's very difficult to see how that can be done. And yet, you could say exactly the same about Chelsea. And what we have here is the the so-called find a bigger fool theory. Yeah. yeah. Um, What you do is that you sell a football club, not as a business, but as an opportunity. You sell the football club 
as a trophy asset and you extol all the virtues to a new prospective owner. So let's, for example, if Ipswich are promoted to the prem- to, to the championship next season, I would be touting the club around to somebody as saying, we are nine months away from the Premier League. If you buy the club now, you are not that far away from hosting Manchester United and Liverpool and Manchester City and having Haaland and uh, Rashford and all of these iconic players coming to your ground. And you sell it on that basis. Um, because if you look at the, the the fundamentals, if you think it's bad losing money in League One, it's nothing compared to the monies which are lost in the championship. And you know, I, I, I gave that figure of £170,000 a week. By championship standards, that's actually quite low. And I think that was part of the issue that uh, Ipswich fans had was they were in that sort of purgatory position where uh, in which the money being spent by the owner was you know, £9 to £10 million a year. But that wasn't enough to really make the club competitive in in terms of trying to compete for a promotion or playoff spot. Uh, and, and therefore, you had that sort of bottom third of the table annual fight until gravity eventually catches up with you mm. and you get relegated. Um, ben from Bury St. Edmunds, is, is it Ed Sheeran? <laughs> no, 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 not quite. Um, so uh, where the slight difference is, though, Kieran, and we have sort of discussed this before, is my understanding is that ORG, um, for example, there are state pension funds who are part of or invested in ORG. So do they not have a responsibility to make a profit or does it not matter whether they make a profit on a weekly basis as long as they make a profit when they sell the club after three years, five years, whatever? You're absolutely right with that second conclusion. If you are an investor, you have a portfolio normally of low risk, medium risk and and high risk investments. Um, And and the high risk investments potentially are going to incur losses. But there is it's it's. It, it's it's gambling. It's the same as sticking money on a horse, you mm. know. And, and you you do exactly that, that same strategy, or, or you know, some but some gamblers do. And what will have happened here is that ORG um, will have investments in risk free areas, which is effectively government bonds issued by you know Switzerland and the United States government, and so on. You know, if 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 the United States go. Government goes bust, then yeah, there are bigger issues in the world uh, than a a, a a individual pension fund losing money. So they will have a range of investments with uh, various uh, elements of risk attached. This will be clearly more of the the moonshot investments, but as we've seen, Ipswich can play fantastic football on the pitch. They've uh, tighter than a gnat's chuff uh, at the back in terms of conceding goals. And if they manage to repeat this next season, then they could be in the Premier League. And then the the owners will be in a position to sell the club for, I would say, a minimum of £150 million. And that's where you mm. make your profit. I'm, I'm still heartbroken that the Drum and Monkey pub shut down. That was the best away pub in the country uh, it was brilliant, but I, I still they should have the same protection pubs like that as cathedrals do. 
I love a cathedral, but somewhere like the Drummer Monkey should have been a that should have been a Grade One listed building. It was, and the and the staff. It's fantastic. Um, I'm even more confused by this next name, Kieran, because we've got a surname, but just yes. an initial for the first names. This next question comes from L. Robert. Now I don't know whether it's just somebody called Robert and producer guy on his way to the airport just pressed the wrong key and added an L. For all I know, this could be the rap name of my accountant, Bobby Numbers. But <laughs> who knows? But uh, I, I doubt it. <laughs> um, but the, L, L. Robert's question could be a bullfighter. I don't know. Um, L. Robert says, that's, that would have been a great joke in the 70s. Uh, never mind. <laughs> this question is about Champions League payouts and whether the Champions League is actually good for Europe. In Hungary, for example, Ferenc Varos have won five of the last seven league seasons. In Serbia, Red Star have won seven of the last nine. In Austria, Red Bull, Salzburg have won nine in a row. Seven out of ten for Legia Warsaw in Poland. Um, and so on, he says. But Robert says, I think we get the point. Given how much money is available in the Champions League compared to the budgets of clubs in these leagues, is the tournament actually a good thing for smaller countries? Or are UEFA payouts simply solidifying top clubs to the point that their financial advantage will be nearly impossible for anyone to overcome. I suspect I know what your answer will be, Kieran, but I think we can refer back here to uh, Jamie's question about women's football because you could argue that the same thing is already beginning to happen in women's football, couldn't you? Yes. um, What we are having here in European football is a procession. If we take a look uh, at Hungary and Uh, Ferenc Varas. In the most recent UEFA financial report that I've got my hands on, which is for 2021, Ferenc Varas made 18 million euro from participation in the group stages of the Champions League. Now, they were in a group which consisted of them and Juventus and Barcelona as two other clubs. So I think we know what the results were going to be. Um, so they they are the makeweights of those divisions. Um, but I think the differences, and, and going back to what we were talking about, the women's game, is that fans of Ferenc Farage will turn up to see their play, teams play uh, Barcelona and Juventus, even though they anticipate a defeat because it's the opportunity to see some global footballing superstars. So... That 18 million euro, and if we take a look at uh, Austria, um, Austria made 34 million euro in in their campaign, gives them such a financial advantage over the other clubs in the domestic league, is that you do end up with this position. And yeah, it it's not. It happens not that far away. If we take a look at what's happened in Scotland, I, I think some somebody quoted me a figure yesterday that the last time that either Celtic or Rangers dropped a point to anybody apart from Celtic or Rangers was something like the eighteenth of October. Wow! So you know, and you look at that, you go, well, that's you know, first of all, you've still got to go and turn up and win, but yeah. it, it is indicative of. Uh, a league where finishing second is seen as failure um, for those two clubs, but it, but in in respect of some of these other leagues, we we now just have a situation where it's it's uh, it's one club. And remember, Celtic have had nine in a row, um, ten and eleven. It looks like yeah, you know, I think effectively they've they've now won the uh, 
the SPFL following yeah, yeah. their victory yesterday. And you know they, they will be absolutely delighted by that. But then you add in the European money, and that just solidifies the existing gaps. Um, and there, there is an organization called A22 who is trying to promote Super League via stealth. Yeah. And what it is doing is saying, well, actually, guys, we, we're proposing a, a sort of European league in which you'll be paying 14 games a season. And the, the impact of that will be to further dilute competitiveness as far as domestic football is concerned. So I think L. Robert makes a, a very valid point. Uh, European football is aspirational, and and that is great. And let let me put my hand on my heart. As a Brighton fan, we we are very giddy, and and as one you know one of my friends said yesterday, um, I don't care who we end up playing against. Yeah, we're going to spend Thursday nights going to cities which I never had any intention or desire to visit <laughs> in the whole of my life, and it's going to be one of the greatest nights of my life. And and that's the parrot. But then you know for us it's going to be. Let's again being realistic. It's probably going to be a one-off, and, and we'll have a few games, and we'll have, we'll have those memories. And you know, it's exactly the same for you know, you know QPR fans. You think about you know, the success that they've had in uh, sorry Fulham uh, had uh, un- under Roy Hodgson. Um, yeah, a, a few years ago, and they will say well, it, it's football is all about memories and shared experience, and it'll be absolutely wonderful. Um, but from a financial point of view, it's it's not good where you are in one of those countries that only has one place in the Champions League, and that could either be through the preliminary rounds or through the group stages. Um, it, it does. It is so lucrative, it creates a huge gap. With regards to the identity of Ben from Bury St Edmunds, could he be the chief executive of Arizona Investment Fund, ORG, who is actually asking you how to turn these losses around and make a profit? <laughs> I, I think if he was, it would be more OMG um, in, in terms of his response. You imagine that at the annual general meetings, like, well, what are you doing about these figures? I've, I've, I've sent a question into a podcast. Um, our penultimate question comes from Dylan Desieux. Um Apologies, Dylan, if I've pronounced your uh, surname incorrectly. Uh, Dylan's question is about international transfers. And he says, is the contract always made in the buying club's jurisdiction or does this vary? I was reading an article which said that in the transfer for Rafinha, Leeds inserted a penalty clause into the contract if Barcelona did not pay part of the transfer fee on time. However, as I know from my law studies, penalty clauses are legally unenforceable in English law. Very interesting, Kieran. Right. It would normally be – I mean, there, there tends to be standard contracts between clubs because they have to be approved by the individual football associations. Um, with regards to penalty clauses, penalty clauses as such are probably – that the law is messy here, and let's face it, uh, we, we are not lawyers as either. But uh, having a clause in a contract which says – um, upon late payment, there will be uh, a an interest charge that is probably enforceable. It's not a penalty clause; it's simply part of the overall terms and conditions. Um, so, I, I think uh, it, it would normally be in in the books of of the seller because 
uh, you know, th- that's what you're doing. It's, you're talking about one of your assets transferring ownership of one of your assets, which is a registration certificate, um, to uh, another club. But it, ultimately, it would all be bound by both UEFA and FIFA regulations. Mm. I, I suppose if you're doing a transfer deal with Barcelona, Kieran, it would be remiss not to put in some sort of penalty clause for late payment, wouldn't it? It certainly certainly would, yes. Uh, I mean, to be fair, I think they have made most of them to date, but not all. Right, okay. Um, Our last question comes from Mark Last, which is, uh, well done, (laughs) producer guy. Uh, That just made me chuckle, the fact that the last question comes from Mark Last. I apologise, Mark. I imagine you've had to put up with that most of your your life. Um, But Mark Last has a question... Uh, so many, so many of our listeners are just obsessed with finding ways around FFP and yes. villainous, those villainous club owners, basically. That Mark says, would it be possible for a wealthy club owner to use loans to disguise their finances? For example, could a club take out a one billion pound loan from a bank, have that counted as FFP income, and then the wealthy owner pays the loan back immediately? This way, the club gets an injection of cash and can offset their losses, and the owner can pay it off as they would anyway. Right. Uh, this wouldn't work, uh, Mark. Right. Um, okay. Because uh, the one million one billion pound loan from a bank would not count towards FFP. Ah. Oh, okay. uh, it would simply be treated as. Uh, as a cash and, and just because a, a business receives cash cash is not the same as income so oh, as far as okay. the football world is concerned it's income from uh we said earlier broadcast commercial um match day and also profits on player sales so so therefore you that that particular cunning scheme would not work Ah, okay. I'm sorry about that, Mark. Um, especially if you are a billionaire club owner who, again, like the owners of ORG, are using this as a way of getting free financial advice from Kieran. Um, if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, cash or income, then please go to patreon.com slash price football. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com and we will do our best to answer it eventually. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell before he goes off to the internet and books his European tour for next season. Um, well thank you everybody for your continued support of the show Um, and uh, it's now now just turned 11 o'clock so uh, I know Kevin will be keeping an eye out for the pontiff in the background Um, well this is a Methodist household Kieran so it'll be the first time the uh Pope's been allowed in so I should be very much looking forward if if it starts thunder and lightning we'll know what's happened There's there's many ways of supporting the show, and uh, just just a quick reminder: we we are having some live shows. One in Leicester uh, in May, Indeed. and one in Plymouth in June. And uh, keep your ears peeled. We we hope to be able to make an announcement sometime about some more uh, in due course. Uh, but there's another way of supporting the show, and that's to uh, go onto your app and to, to give us a review. And uh, it helps us in the charts, the number of reviews, and so on. Uh, the guests. Uh, like to see that the club, that the podcaster does have uh, some some uptake as well. Um, and by all accounts, it doesn't matter what you say on the podcast. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Brian Johnson, the mangled testicle singer from ACDC, and <laughs> Brian Johnston, the former cricket commentator on Test Match Special. And I would tune in for that. I think they're both two absolutely fantastic individuals. 
Do you know what? I bet they'd get on quite well. They would be brilliant together. They would. What what, what a singer. What a broadcaster as well. Uh, Is either of those Ben from Bury St. Edmunds, by the way? (laughs) Not quite. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. The Proviso Football. Bye, son, for football.